Welcome to the podcast of Unity Fort Worth. In it, you'll hear this week's message and meditation. If you'd like to hear and see the complete service, you can always find it at unityfortworth.org or on the Unity Fort Worth Facebook page. Unity Fort Worth focuses on positive and practical Christianity with a willingness to explore the entire world of religion and spiritual thought. Unity Fort Worth streams live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. All right, so we are talking again about unity and world religions using Paul John Roach's book, and we are going to dive into unity and Judaism today, which is chapter two. And um, we are in this first part, in the very first paragraph, Paul makes a very interesting observation about the age of Judaism. And I thought it would be really interesting to look at that first before we go too, too much into it. Because the ages of religion is one of those debated things that you can find pretty much anything out there. It really depends on how you define when a religion starts. It has a lot to do with whether do you consider oral communication or do you only consider scriptural communication? And it makes a huge difference. Now in Paul's case, he's mentioning that some may consider Judaism the oldest religion. I actually did some research and I found that if you go to a Christian website, they claim to be the old, oldest religion. If you go to the Jewish website, they usually claim that they're the old, oldest religion. You can go anywhere uh, except maybe unity because that will be just laughable when unity said we're the oldest religion. But here's a, here's a breakdown, and don't get me on those numbers, right? So there's, there's heaps of them out there. But generally, Hinduism is considered around 7,000 before Common Era, and then Judaism 2,000. Again, that would include some of the oral traditions, because the Vedas, who are the first Hindu texts that we know about, they are actually around 15 to 2,000 before Common Era. Okay? Whereas the Jewish uh, text scriptures are between 500 and 900 before Common Era. So it really depends on your lens. But what I really wanted to point out is, look at all these uh, um, in between there, 500, 600, and 700 BCE. Shinto, Buddhism, Confucianism, Jainism, and Taoism. You know, so very close together, all at around the same time. And then Christianity, 100 common era because it doesn't start with Jesus Christ, it starts later, after even Paul's letters were written and after the gospel, or when the last gospel, John's gospel was written. And then the Islam, again, I went to an Islamic website, a Muslim website, and they claimed to be the oldest religion, but commonly it's understood it started around 600 common era. And then just in comparison, how young we are, New thought is 1800s, late 1800s for uh, us in unity. So we are very, very young. But I thought it's kind of neat to see the differences in terms of that. But we're not going to stop there. Just think of this for a moment. 
if you include oral tradition, and if you think about all the people that have lived and for how long they have lived, is that really the oldest we can get? When did religion really start? Did it start with the spoken word? Did it start with painting, paintings of symbolisms, where however we relate to each other, thinking about one or more gods, when did it really start? And it brought me to this picture here, which is coming more from the studies of how old humanity is. And you see that our modern existence right, starts in Africa about two to 300,000 years ago. And then it starts spreading out into Asia, going all the way down to Australia, into Europe, and then all the way across to the Americas. And you can see, for example, that in Australia, the Australian Aboriginals are 65,000 years old. And it's claimed that their religion, the dream time, is just as old. It may not have been written down. It may have taken thousands of years until we actually can find some paintings on a rock or some carvings on a rock that remind us of the dream time, the Australian Aboriginal religion. But think of it, for example, in the Americas, North America, 16,000 years ago, Native American religion. Okay? So if we get away from just looking at scripture, but we're actually looking at oral tradition, we may actually be in the presence of tens of thousands of years of religious and spiritual thought. Isn't that amazing? And I just wanted to make that point to put not only Judaism in context, but all religions that we're going to talk about. So the next thing I wanted to do is, as I was reading chapter one last week, in chapter two this week, chapter one, Paul was clearly identifying every unity principle, all five principles, and he was writing the title. In, in this chapter, he didn't do that anymore, but you could actually see he was still following first, second, third, fourth, and fifth principle. And so I want to continue with that structure because I think it's a helpful structure. First of all, we all get to remember every week what are the five principles in unity that we teach. And then we learn a little bit how the religions differ in terms of looking at those principles depending on their views. So first principle, there's only one presence and one power in our lives and in the universe, God, goodness, omnipotence. That's what we recite every Sunday. There is only one God, right? So how does Judaism look at it? Yes, Judaism, especially modern Judaism, again, let's say 2000 BCE, um, really solidly invested in one God. There's only one God for the Israelites, right? And how about unity? Yes, of course, there's only one God. What else? Judaism, much more than Christianity, is very clear there's no equal power to God. 
They're not claiming that there is a Satan or that we can uh, just fall for Satan instead of God. They don't, they don't have that confusion between evil and goodness as much. In, in Judaism, it's very clear Satan is less than God. It's just a screwed up way of looking at God. That's all it is. Satan, actually, Paul writes this in the book, is only mentioned three times in the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you ever read the Hebrew Scriptures or even just tried to read one book in the Hebrew Scriptures, that's very little for all the words that are in the Hebrew Scriptures. So it has really no relevance when it comes to God. There is no Satan that has equal power to God. And unity believes the exact same thing. If we claim that there is only one God and that God is all-powerful, then there's nothing else that can be as powerful. The other thing that is really interesting in Judaism is they have these two names, Yahweh and Elohim, which are names that they were using in Scripture for God. And um, there's, there's a whole story around it, and Paul does a wonderful job explaining that. I'll leave this up to you to read a little bit more clearly. In unity, we, we use a little more modern, modern words. We use law, God is principle, or, or principle, so God is law, or God is principle. We even, when we teach metaphysics or teach some of the unity principles, we actually sometimes say as an exercise, replace the word God with law or principle. Because then we're starting to understand more closely how we perceive God to be as this infinite possibility that, has, that follows that infutable law, and we all follow that law as, le as long as we align ourselves with it. But the Jews don't stop there, and the unity people don't stop there either. So let's look at some of the Jewish names for God. Adonai, which is usually used only in prayer. Hashem, used instead of Adonai, outside of a ritual. Adoshem, which is a combination of Adonai and Hashem. And I'm not sure if I pronounce this correctly. Eye, Asher Eye, which is the famous I am that I am, which is actually where unity and Judaism connect. It's when Moses asked God through the burning bush, what's your name? I am that I am. In unity, we say this and affirm this over and over again. I am that I am. Eye, Asher Eye. El, used in poetry and prophecy. Elion, God of the Most High. Shaddai, Almighty, primarily used in the book of Job. Shalom, which means peace, the God of peace. Shekinah, Shekinah, God dwelling among humanity. And Yah, first letters of Yahweh. Why do they have all these names? Right? In the old days, only rabbis and the highest priests were allowed 
to utter the words Yahweh. And so the people had to come up with a different way of relating to God. They wanted to connect with God, and they found all these different ways to connect with it. And when I read this and learned this, I thought, how is this so different from the Christians having the saints? That when Christians use the saints to connect with God just through a different person. How is it different from Hinduism, where we have all these different gods like Hanuman and Krishna and Durga and so on to connect with the Most High? It's a name where we, that we use in different ways, in different circumstances to connect with the Most High, with all there is. Well, unity has also names or synonyms for God, and here they are. You know, so we have law and principle. They're, they're a little bolded there. But then we also have Jehovah, which is Yahweh, or Elohim. We have supply, substance, resource. We have being, spirit, spiritual, human, all good, Christ. That can be a synonym. Lord, word or logos divine mind, divine idea, and the I am. So we also use different names to connect with God because in different circumstances, it, sometimes it's easier to see God as abundant or abundance itself or to see ourselves as the I am in order to relate to God. Where unity and Judaism really connect is that we both believe it's impossible to describe God. And we simply say, it's just impossible. We cannot describe which is undescribable, so we're using words and synonyms to relate to it the best we can. So then the second principle, so what is our relationship to God? So there's only one God, Nothing else. But how do we relate to that? Second principle says we are God expressing such inherent goodness in unity. And in Judaism, it re reflects the I am, what's called the I am consciousness. So it goes back to the I am that I am. Once God reveals his name or her name or its name through the burning bush, it's clear that God is the I am, and that we are the I am also. So I am consciousness means that we are lifting ourselves into that highest possible consciousness. Unity does the exact same thing. I am consciousness. In Judaism, they believe that humans are just a little less than God, just a smudge. Right? We're almost there. Is it Schmier or Schmutz? <laughs> Schmutz is Yiddish, right? Uh, Schmier. Let's go with Schmier. So, um, a Schmier less than God, right? And, and then unity, we say, because we can't help ourselves, we are the same, but we're not the same. How is that helpful, right? So we claim that we are I am that I am by being God but not God itself. 
which is that paradox with which we learn to live. And we learn to live with that paradox through practice. So through practicing, practicing the principles and starting to understand how that works. When we are tapping into that I am consciousness, that infinite potential, and when we are forgetting to do that, and then life gets really messy, right? In the Kabbalah, which is the mystic branch of Judaism, they talk about the spark of divinity. Let me see if I did this, yeah. And inseparability. Remember in Christianity, some Christian denominations have this huge thing that we can never be like God. There is this huge cliff that we can never never come over. We can never transform. We can never get over it. In Judaism, and that's why Judaism sometimes feels a little closer to unity than Christianity does in certain aspects, is no, it's impossible to separate ourselves from God. And unity feels exactly the same way. When we look at the third principle, how does this impact our life? The way we think, feel, and act shapes how we experience our lives. Judaism talks about we're either turning toward or away from God. In every moment that we make choices, we turn toward or away from God. Ideally, in Judaism, we first think about how is our relationship with God before we do anything. First, we must determine, are we turning toward or away from God before we pay our bills? Are we turning toward or away from God before we talk to someone? Are we turning toward or away from God before we enter into, let's say, an argument or a difficult conversation? That's very big in Judaism. Unity is very similar in by saying we're either aligned or not aligned with our divinity. We're either aligned with our God inheritance or we're not. And again, ideally, we do this before we do anything. Now, it's easier said than done, right? Most of us, if we're really true to ourselves, sometimes don't think a whole day about God, let alone our relationship with that. But when we go by some of the great writers, including Paul, St. Paul, we know that we must put God first. Jesus taught that. Any of the great teachers taught that. We always must put God first. We must first align ourselves, or we must first go toward God before we do anything in life. So now, if you're curious about why sometimes life doesn't happen the way you like it, you can actually ask yourself whenever that happens, well, did I go toward God, or was I aligned with God, or with my divinity when I did something? And often we can go and say, ah, maybe I could have done a better job, right? Danger of simplistic interpretation. I love that one. In Judaism, it's recognized that when we look at the third principle, which is all about the way we think and feel and how we act, there is a danger of looking at this relationship too simplistically. 
And you find this in a lot of modern work. Um, in new, new Age, not all of it, but in a lot of New Age or esoteric work, sometimes it's almost a little bit too simplistic as if it's just a matter of a second, which is possible. For most people, it's a lot more work in order to learn how to align ourselves and how to work toward God. In unity, we have this term. We call this danger of simplistic interpretation, metaphysical malpractice, or metaphysical bypassing. Metaphysical malpractice is when we learn that everything starts in mind and heart, including when we are sick or when we have issues in our lives, and what a simplistic way of looking at it will be, or metaphysical malpractice, is when we get the sniffles that we then start beating ourselves up about it. Okay? It's not necessary. We can still say we got the sniffles, and maybe it's a relationship to how we relate to God, but there's no reason for us to get really um, dark about it or in any way negative about it. So there's a lot more to it, but I like that comparison between simplistic interpretation, takes a little bit more work. Remember Myrtle Fillmore? Two years for her to heal herself, not two minutes, right? We all want two minutes in today's world, but most likely it's going to take two years, or maybe two weeks at least, or two months, right? Okay. And then, one more thing, we can always be fully restored. In Jewish beliefs, that's very strong. We always have the ability to be fully restored. Isn't that amazing? A lot of people don't know that about Judaism. It's not, uh, it's not about waiting for some second coming. It's not about the rapture, where we have to kind of like cross our fingers, whether we're going to be ready for the rapture or something. We will always have the ability to be fully restored. And they specifically reference the book of Job. I talked about the book of Job a few months ago, and it's an incredible book, very difficult to read and understand, but ultimately talks about that even if the worst things in our lives happen, and even if we are, believe we are the, the, the most negative and the most awful person, we can always, always, always be fully restored. A very strong belief in Judaism and in unity. We say it just a little bit differently. We can always remember the truth. We go one step further than in Judaism, although it could just be semantics. In unity belief, we already are fully restored. There's nothing to restore. We just need to remember. Slight difference but I think it's an important one. Fourth principle, how do we better ourselves? We use prayer, meditation, dinas, and affirmations to expand our spiritual understanding. In Judaism, prayer is often ritualized, whereas in unity, prayer is affirmative. We don't have a lot of rituals in unity. You probably noticed that before. I try to bring in ceremonies and, and rituals once in a while a little bit more than traditional. But prayer is usually in unity not connected to a ritual, whereas in Judaism, it's actually more common. 
For example, the weekly Sabbath or Shabbat, you know, Friday evening. It's a ritualistic way of doing the Friday evening dinner with reading scriptures and so on. In unity, we know the Sunday prayer and the meditation. You can consider this a ritual if you want to. There's the high holidays in Judaism or holidays in general. And I have a graph here. We just had Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, September 26th. And next, um, is it Tuesday? Wednesday. Next Wednesday is Yom Kippur, which is Day of Atonement. Right? These are two high holidays in Judaism, and prayer is often connected very clearly to that, depending on which Judeo to Jewish tradition you follow, Orthodox or um, more Reformed, you have different ways of relating to that. And then in unity, we usually only know two rituals, burning bowl and white stone ceremony. And then finally, in, when it comes to prayer or our way we relate with God and how we practice our spirituality, we have scriptural readings and chants. And in unity, we actually have to bring in some of those rituals from other religions. So we have done this before. We've brought in from Buddhist traditions, from Hindu traditions. We've brought in rituals because we are not so closed in terms of allowing other rituals to be practiced in our own way of expressing our spirituality. We're just going to borrow it, call it lazy, or just being smart, right? Because we are such a new religion. Um, we just borrow from other religions. And finally, the fifth principle, we must take action. Knowing all the first four is not enough. If we don't act, nothing happens. So we must act and live them every day. Judaism has a very strong call to action, as does unity. And then in Judaism, it's about repairing and restoring the relationship with God. Whereas in unity, it's moving beyond sense of separation. Again, very diff different points of view. In unity, we don't believe we have anything to repair. We don't believe we have anything to restore because we consider ourselves already whole. We just need to learn to go beyond a sense of separation, <clears throat> which is actually a lot closer to Hinduism, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. And then finally, many different directions toward justice. So social justice is coming up in especially Reformed Judaism, and there's many, many different ways to express that justice, including you know, diversity and equity and all these things that we now know about and learn about and want to become more active. Unity is a little bit more passive on that, and we're learning. Again, I call it, it's because we are a relatively long, young movement. We are more internalizing and saying there is an assumption of knowing justice, and it's only internalized. And there's some unity churches that are very passive, and all they do is they just meet, and that's it. And lately, in the past maybe 10 or 20 years, more unity churches have become more willing to actually go out there and 
do something about social justice, like people's rights, and so on. So we have a lot to learn there in that respect. I love this quote before we move into meditation. Um, Paul writes, unity does not have a clearly defined social justice ethic. And the emphasis has always been on personal awakening, on transformation, again, with the understanding. When we awaken and transform ourselves, we will know justice and we will act accordingly. But in the last few years, we have seen a move toward a more socially active stance. And I embrace that, and I'm glad it's happening. And that's a good reason for you to be part of the community engagement team, because we are going out there and we are participating in many different ways. And let me see if I have the time. Yeah, we'll do this real quick. So um, Paul, I think he writes in the book that he's considered himself a mystic. And so he brings in the mysticism in every chapter. And so we have some time to cover that. So Jewish his mysticism is very similar to unity. It's about to unknow what we know and to surrender. Mysticism is a different way of approaching spirituality. And there is, from the Kabbalah, again, the mystic branch of Judaism. You have the tree of life. And you may have seen this before, this drawing or this structure. And I don't know if you can see it, but it actually starts on the top with the crown. And then on the left, the blue is understanding, wisdom, next to the white, strength, mercy, beauty, splendor, victory, and foundation, and then kingdom at the end. But if you think about understanding, wisdom, strength, what do you think about in unity? Louder, louder. Come on, guys. You know it. There you go. Thank you. Twelve powers, right? So we have this Kabbalah branch, the tree of life, and Paul writes showing the movement, what Kabbalah is or what this tree of life does, it shows the movement from the boundless or limitless God down to the kingdom. So it's from the crown all the way down, and from there it goes into the world. Well, here's the comparison to unity. This is a, a drawing how the 12 powers are located in our body, bodies, and it's the same idea from the crown, which we call Christ consciousness or divine mind or God, all the way through our body, and then it goes out into the world through via the 12 powers, among which, again, are understanding and wisdom and so on. So you can see that even though we have two that we may consider rather different religions. There's a lot of similarities. And there's no accident about that. Because Charles Fillmore, when he wrote, uh, or he co-authored the Metaphysical Bible Dictionary, he actually used a lot of Jewish scholars and used a lot of their work to integrate into unity. So we might even say, that in some respects, unity has more familiarity with Judaism than with any other religion. And so it just speaks again to allowing that spark 
of mysticism and divinity to come in. And with that, we'll conclude for today. Next week will be Islam, chapter 3, and then we will have, on October 16, an imam come and speak about the Muslim faith. So it's, we're going to have two weeks of focusing on Islam and um, the last of the three Abrahamic traditions after Christianity and Judaism. So let us take a few minutes in meditation. So remember that Judaism and unity is very close in the way we relate to God. There is only one. And we are inseparable from that. So let's take that into our meditation as an inspiration for allowing ourselves to relate. Right now, whatever is going on in our lives, we may experience a whole spectrum of feelings and thoughts. We may experience life as difficult, as challenging, and hopefully sometimes also as rewarding and joyful. All those experiences are part of our humanity and they're also part of our spirituality. So when we are struggling, we can follow a Jewish way of repairing and restoring, or we're following the alignment and realignment with our divine self. We imagine for a moment that we are this infinite potential that image of God. We are that spark of divinity, that essence in the universe, that expression of perfect goodness. We already are that. 
from that place, we allow ourselves to move into the holiness and the completeness of who and what we are. We settle for the peace that passes all understanding. And we find a moment of perfect joy. We recognize that God's grace is our grace. That the beauty of the universe is our beauty. The kindness of Mother Nature is our kindness. And the calm and ease of so many teachers that have followed the many religions is ours, our calm and ease. So let us allow to awaken to this new opportunity. Awaken to this possibility that we are in truth, without judgment, without negativity, without darkness. And we're always capable of remembering that. So in the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the name of Moses, Rebecca, Esther, we follow the path of the Israelites, the path of those people in the highest way of being. We release ourselves from bondage, the bondage of Egypt, and together we journey toward the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we follow the resurrection Letting go of anything that no longer serves us, forgiving ourselves and others to bring heaven on earth. We are the I am that I am. We carry God's name. We are the perfect expression of infinite goodness at all times. So let us take a moment in silence and give thanks to whomever we want to give thanks to, allowing the silence to emerge and the goodness to prevail.
until it is. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. You just heard this week's message and meditation. For the live streams and more information, go to unityfortworth.org.